I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. President Jimmy Carter, at a recent press conference discussing his cancer diagnosis and treatment, expressed his wish to outlive the last guinea worm. The Carter Center, since 1986, has led a global effort to eradicate guinea worm disease with great success, and its goal is within reach. We spoke to Ernesto Ruiz Taben, director of the Carter Center's Guinea Worm Eradication Program, about its efforts, the history behind it, and what lessons can be drawn in combating other public health threats throughout the world. Ernesto, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. There was a a remarkable moment at President Carter's recent press conference where he was discussing his diagnosis and treatment for cancer. As he talked about what he would like to accomplish in the time he has left, he said that he'd like to outlive the last guinea worm. We're going to talk about the Carter Center's work to eradicate the guinea worm and guinea worm disease, how it came about, and and why it's been so successful. But perhaps you can begin with the guinea worm itself. What is guinea worm and and guinea worm disease? Well, guinea worm is a a worm. It's a round worm. We call them technically nematodes. Uh, It grows to about three feet in length. And people become infected by ingesting water that's been contaminated by someone else who's had the worm that came out through their skin and released the larvae in the water. The larvae uh, are uh, usually uh, uh, gobbled up by little water fleas in the, in the, in the body of water, uh, and uh, the, the larvae uh, incubate in this Water fleas were about uh, 10 to 14 days and become infective larvae. Anyone fetching water from those sources around that time or thereafter um, and drinking it becomes uh, becomes infected. Well, so that's how people acquire it. How has the disease manifested itself and how has it historically been treated? Well, the, the disease uh, incubates for uh, one year uh, during which... Uh, uh, the patient uh, doesn't have a clue that he or she has been infected, and there are no signs and symptoms associated with it until the worm has fully grown to about one yard in length and uh, or one meter in length and uh, decides to uh, emerge. Uh, it's a term we use to say that the worm wants to expose herself to the environment outside of the body in order for her to release the larvae in the water. So at that time, uh, uh, swelling and a blister forms, uh, which causes very intense uh, burning sensation. And uh, those infected, uh, you know, will tend to put water on on this blister and, and the affected limb to find uh, relief. And that's precisely what the worm wants because it softens the skin, the uh, the blister sloughs off, and 
leaving a, a crater, an open crater, at the bottom of which is the anterior end of the worm. And if if, the, if that part is exposed to water, the worm will release the larvae in it. So that's how the disease manifests itself. All these wounds caused by this uh, by these worms uh, tend to develop uh, secondary bacterial infections, which uh, in in the settings where the disease occur uh, causes a great deal of misery. It, it uh, incapacitates people and prolongs and exacerbates the pain associated with it and the period of incapacity. So it's a disease that can um, devastate communities that rely on on uh, agriculture, for example, and the worms come out during that period of time uh, when they need to be planting or harvesting or preparing the fields, and uh, people can't work. And so the children then have to take over some of those chores for the for their mothers and fathers, and they can't go to school. And so there's a whole ripple effect uh, associated with the level of poverty and, and the presence of this disease among among those people. And has there historically been treatment for the, the worm? No, there is no, no drug or vaccine uh, available for this infection. And uh, all we can do is prevent it. And so that's part of what we try to do. How did the Carter Center become involved in the effort to eradicate guinea worm disease? Well, the genesis of the idea of eradicating guinea worm disease uh, originated at the Centers for Disease Control in 1980. And uh, in 1982, we, uh, I was at CDC at the time, uh, together with other colleagues, and um, CDC organized a meeting of experts on guinea worm disease and, and public health at the time uh, to review uh, all of the collective knowledge about this disease and how it can be uh, dealt with as a public health problem. Uh, the conclusion of that meeting was that the the um, methods uh, available at the time to to control uh, transmission of the disease could be applied to try to eradicate the disease. And um, but uh, during the period of 1980 to 1986, no one wanted to have anything to do with the eradication of another disease. Smallpox having been eradicated at the in 1977, and the world declared free of, of smallpox in 1980. And uh, until uh, the same people who uh, suggested that guinea worms should be eradicated in 1980 from CDC discussed the issue with uh, with President Carter, and President Carter uh, uh, understood the message and uh, decided to become the the premier advocate for uh, for the eradication campaign to raise funds and to make eradication possible, and not only that, but allow the Carter Center as an institution to become the lead non-governmental organization uh, dedicated to assisting the national guinea worm programs of the ministries of health of those countries, technically and financially. That's how it became to do, because Carter understood that uh, good health is part of human rights, and for him, it was a no-brainer to... uh, to include uh, disease uh, eradication and uh, as part of the program of the Carter Center. And I would add that, and also another major uh, determinant here was the fact that no one else was doing 
something about it. And uh, that's been a mantra of the Carter Center to work on problems that others are not working on, not to duplicate things that are being done well by others. Why was this seen as an important target and what gave the Carter Center confidence that it could actually be eradicated? Well, the best example I can give you is that this is a disease called the uh, the <laughs> the, uh, the forgotten disease of forgotten people, and that tells the story of why we did it because no one was doing nothing about it. The most marginalized and impoverished people in the world were affected by this disease, on top of having malaria and having every other disease you can imagine. And so we could do something about it and decided to apply ourselves to do that. What's the approach that the Carter Center took in combating guinea worm disease? Well, the, the approach that we promoted was based on, on uh, essentially on the conclusions of the meeting I alluded to earlier, uh, where the experts uh, uh, blessed the idea of um, the possibility of eradicating guinea worm. Uh, the main thrust of the of the methods to control is to educate people about what they they can do themselves to prevent the disease from happening. Uh, tied to that is the notion that um, we uh, try to encourage the national guinea worm programs to engage with each affected community in a way where you establish a dialogue with the community members so that they become part of the program and not view this as something that their government is doing for them and expect everything to happen, but ask them to be active participants in the process. So uh, the the main idea was to educate people about what guinea worm is, how people become infected with guinea worm disease so that they can understand that process and what they can do to prevent themselves from becoming infected. That's that's the nuts and bolts of the of the approach. Um, and secondly we we try to empower those communities uh, with tools so that they could act on their own. We requested them to not allow anyone with guinea worm disease in their community to go and fetch water and contaminate sources of water so others can become infected a year later or develop the disease a year later, uh, first and foremost. So uh, any resident was uh, called to inform about others who may have the disease. In every village, the we ask the, the village leaders to designate uh, what we call a village volunteer. That volunteer was trained and educated to impart educational messages messages to their to the residents of the of his community or her community. Uh, we always encourage a male and a female to be volunteers in each village. Uh, we train them uh, to do that. We train them to provide medical care for the patients, mainly occlusive bandages and some topical antibiotics, so that would minimize the severity of uh, secondary bacterial infections associated with the emergence of the worm. Uh, we donated uh, to the, each community filters for each household so they could be uh, filter all their drinking water through there. These filters are very simple. It's a sieve uh, with a mesh of 100 microns by 100 microns. So that retains all of the water fleas that are in the water and least people will not get guinea worm. 
it's not uh, those filters are not designed to uh, sterilize the water in any any manner. But they they do uh, um, they they can be used to prevent guinea worm disease. In addition to that, we uh, we inform the community about the use of a, a, a chemical larvicide called temephos or abate which can be put in the uh, ponds uh, or sources of stagnant water they use for drinking if, if we know or they know that anyone contaminated that source to prevent uh, the infection from going forward uh, from that moment on. And in each community, the program, the National Guinea Worm Program, advocated with other water sector organizations in country to provide boreholes um, uh, for... Um, safe water from underground sources in each community if the geology of the place uh, permitted. So those are the main uh, the main interventions against uh, uh, guinea worm disease used throughout this uh, campaign. When you embarked on this effort in 1986, how widespread was the problem and, and where are we today? We uh, At that time, there were three and a half million cases occurring annu annually. Um, in uh, in 20 countries across sub-Saharan Africa and uh, three countries in Asia, uh, uh, India, uh, Pakistan, and Yemen, and uh, about 120 million people were residents in in the affected area of those countries, so they were at risk of acquiring the infection. Uh, then, and today? Uh, as of the end of the year. Uh, 2014, we only had 126 cases left in, in four countries, uh, all of them in Africa, um, Chad, Ethiopia, Mali, and South Sudan. And as of today, uh, there are, as of the end of July, there were 12 cases only in those same, uh, reported from those same countries. Given the, the nature and geography of the disease, I imagine there were a number of challenges you had to overcome. What what were they, and how did you do that? Well, given that the uh, the affected uh, residents in in those very remote rural areas of of those countries were so marginalized, uh, they were usually very weary of outsiders and and weary of uh, of trusting um, what they were told. So engaging, learning how to engage the communities in a positive way. Uh, by sitting down uh, with them and talking and uh, asking them to participate in the conversation, uh, having a dialogue instead of a monologue with them uh, was key. And we did this uh, not under the guise of the Carter Center, but we did it wearing the, man the mantle of the National Guinea Worm Program so that they knew that this was an effort from their own government to improve their their well-being uh, rather than something being pushed by an organization they couldn't relate to because they didn't even know where, where it was uh, or who even President Carter might be at the time. So, uh, you know, we, we, we um, emphasize the need uh, for all of our staff, uh, including the national program staff with, in which we are embedded, uh, to uh, to approach the communities in that manner, and that's what every time you are able to do this, you you gain an ally in the fight rather than some 
group of people who are hostile to what you're trying to do. And um, that's one reason why it's taking um, a long time to bring this disease to uh, to its knees at the moment. But it's been uh, critical. Well, eradication seems to be within reach. What's it going to take to finish the job? Well, uh, <laughs> um Tenacity is the name of the game. Uh, it's the worm or us, so we're not going to let the worms win, and uh, we're going to stay stay on on it until the last one is gone. So we keep uh, refining what we do, um, holding everyone accountable, making sure that things are done the right way, in the right places, at the right times, all the time. Uh, even in the most remote areas of where the programs, these programs operate, and um, and demanding results, and uh, and continuing to engage the com- communities as needed to uh, make things happen. Are, are there lessons here we can draw on addressing other public health threats throughout the world? And- well, there are many lessons. The the principal ones are the principles of eradication. The the objective here is to interrupt transmission, which means uh, getting down to zero cases everywhere in the world. And uh, you are not going to arrive at that goal anytime soon if you don't apply the levels of rigor and um, discipline and, and, and excellence in terms of execution of the program uh, guidelines and uh, operating procedures. Um, um, if you don't, and 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 so um, those principles are are well known and established, and there's plenty of literature on it. And so these programs have got to um, operate that way to to be able to reduce incidence of the disease to zero. And and that can be applied to any new health program, whether it's an eradication program or a long-term control program, or uh, Elimination programs, as they're called now, which is eradication at the local level. Ernesto Ruiz Tiban, director of the Guinea Worm Eradication Program for the Carter Center. Ernesto, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.